Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 42 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. Another Easter celebration is in the books with no sign yet of Jesus returning, but there are lots of signs of something else returning, and actually that has to come first. A small sign of this something was recently illustrated in a report from one of our family members. At a recent town-sponsored Easter egg hunt, Plastic eggs had been scattered all across a recreation field for small children to find and pick up. This annual event started at a set time with the kids lining up behind a starting line in preparation. At the sound of a bell, a virtual wave of children descended across the field grabbing eggs with greedy gusto. Uh, That's not surprising, but what was surprising is that it took less than 30 seconds and probably less than 20 seconds for the second wave of people to rush onto the field grabbing eggs and piling them up in their shirts. This second wave was made up exclusively of parents. As the crazed adults practically ran over children to get the eggs, other parents who were just accompanying their children also started grabbing eggs for their kids, probably thinking they better get some for theirs while the getting was good. And then the saddest thing of all happened. In a small area that was taped off and reserved for the very smallest children, the toddler kids, parents ducked under the caution tape and snatched eggs from the ground right in front of the toddlers. It was quite a sight over something as insignificant as plastic eggs. And this was a wealthy community in a very affluent state. Obviously, it wasn't poverty that was driving these desperate parents to invade a field for kids and grab whatever they could get. They were looting the field to glorify and placate their own child. These misguided parents were determined to help their child win, even though there was no competition involved. This is but a tiny window into the rapid descent of humanity in America, where every man, woman, and child looks out for themselves and theirs at the expense of someone else. It harkens back to the glory days of paganism before the rise of Christian morality and cultural expectations a world that valued individual and tribal success over everything else, and still today holds in contempt the Christian value of sacrificial service to others for their own benefit. It's the total opposite of the Apostle Paul's admonition in Philippians 2.3 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Christian morality and behavior is totally alien and incomprehensible to the mind of pagans who have embraced the widespread Darwinian concept of survival of the fittest. To them, Christian morality is unfit to survive, even on a huge field filled with little plastic eggs for children to pick up. Easter is the celebration of Jesus having penetrated paganism to establish his church through which Christian morality invaded the world and drove back the darkness of paganism with the light of God, at least partially. But the darkness that cannot comprehend the light is on the move again to regain lost ground. In 21st century America, we perceive events around us as manifestations of human decisions, whether for good or ill, 
because we are a scientific, modern culture that sees the world through the lens of psychology, sociology, and technology. But we make a serious error when we see only the material, physical world, because that's only half the story. I'm a scientist and I love science, which is the study of the physical universe around us. But science by itself only gives us a distorted and incomplete view of reality. The other part of reality, the equal and even greater part, is spiritual in nature and is able to penetrate physical reality to influence human perceptions and behavior. This spirit world cannot be discerned by science because it's not subject to manipulation and control by humans or instruments which is why science has such a hard time identifying it. Despite corporate America's best attempt to commercialize this special day, Easter is not really about eggs and bunnies, but about spiritual reality. It celebrates the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which is a spiritual process of his soul entering a new and improved body, one that cannot get sick, injured, or die. Jesus, in this new body, was taken to heaven, which is a spiritual place where he waits until the assigned day of his physical return to the earth, when he will rule and reign over all of humanity from that day forward. It's a day that the Satanists of this world don't think is going to arrive because they think the spiritual powers and authorities are going to prevent it. They know that Jesus is coming, but they are convinced that their side is stronger than he is. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the world's population has absolutely no idea that a decisive clash between good and evil is being set up, and that majority includes most Christians in America. Oh, they know that there is supposed to be some unpleasantness associated with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, but they have no interest in knowing the details or understanding the mechanisms that will be involved. But some Christians think about these things one of whom is a minister and writer by the name of Jonathan Kahn, C-A-H-N. His most recent best-selling book is titled The Return of the Gods, and he does an excellent job explaining why Western Christendom in general, and the United States in particular, is experiencing the kind of social upheavals that we are currently experiencing. I don't want to take away from Mr. Kahn's revenue stream, so if you're interested in what he has to say, I encourage you to make a book purchase to support him. I'll just summarize his main points because it directly ties in with the theme of this podcast, but you can explore lots more detail in his book. The main point can be summarized in the word delusion, which Paul speaks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-11, where it says, The coming of the lawless one is in accordance with the workings of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What does Paul mean by this word delusion, and what form is it going to take? How will it come about? A delusion is a misunderstanding of reality. It is a belief about reality that is demonstrably untrue, yet the deluded believe it. The form of delusion can vary depending on circumstances, but in the end times, delusion will come about by the actions of powerful spirit entities, just like it came about in the ancient days of pagan worship. Jonathan Kahn's thesis is that the same spirit entities that once ruled over the earth as virtual gods, manipulating the thoughts and actions of men and women in their dominions, 
are making a comeback. Those spirits were worshipped in temples, honored in shrines, and praised on every mountaintop. Kings submitted to them, priesthoods served them, and common people glorified them. The spirits were the supreme rulers on the earth, at least until Jesus showed up. He forced them back into the shadows as he built and expanded his church throughout what we call the church age. It was a powerful run of 2,000 years, affecting virtually every facet of life on earth. However, the run is coming to an end and these spirit entities are pushing back using the same methods and the same tactics they've always used. In Christian parlance, the spirits use oppression to attack human beings. Oppression is the process of trying to gain entrance to the body of a target victim, which usually involves some kind of exchange where the spirit entices the victim to make contact with it. Any willful contact with the spirit creates what's called a foothold, which is the legal right for the spirit to interact with the target victim on an intimate basis. Spirits may try to further their interaction with a person by offering something of value, maybe secret knowledge, special talents, or promises of power, wealth, or prestige. Once a spirit has gained enough access to a body, it's able to control that body in a condition known as possession. Oppression and possession are best known as individual problems, but they can also occur on a societal level or even across an entire culture. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of the end-time delusion. The reason we see an increasing level of insanity in the Western world is because the Western world, and the United States in particular, is in the process of being repossessed by these same spirit entities that once possessed entire empires. Jonathan Kahn identified three particular high-level spirit authorities that plagued the Middle East during most of its history, which he calls the Dark Trinity. The first was known as the Possessor. He was the chief god, little g, a god of fertility and a god of war. He went by many names, but in the Bible he was known as Baal. It means lord, owner, or master. There were many Baals, but they were all manifestations of the same spirit that ruled over all the other spirits. The Greeks called him Zeus, and the Romans called him Jupiter, but in the Canaanite pantheon, he was just called Baal. Judges 10.6 says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The king of spirits, the spirits which are otherwise called demons, is Lucifer the light bearer, whom we call Satan, the enemy of God. Satan is the anti-god, the substitute god, the god who made the people of Israel turn away from the true god and toward that which is a lie, that which is delusion. He made them fall away from God to apostatize. He was the enemy of God then, and he's still the enemy of God today. Beginning in the 19th century, America and most of the Western world came under severe stress from Marxists and fascists who sought to penetrate Western society and change our civilization from within. These political systems are deeply and emphatically anti-God, and they targeted the God-fearing West. World War I caused tremendous carnage and destruction in Europe, and the trauma it caused started the Europeans down the road of rationalism and away from God. But that war didn't much affect America. America was the heartland of Christianity before World War I, and it was still the heartland afterward. But then the suffering and carnage of World War II came, and something fundamentally changed. The actions of the fascists and the communists so traumatized the world that people began to lose faith in God. 
they turned away from God and toward human reason and rationality, even though it was this same reason and rationality that led directly to the tremendous carnage that was both world wars. How does Baal retake lost ground? He separates people from their God. He makes them question God, why he allows horrible things to happen, why he seems to be absent when the world is being torn apart. He offers a substitute that seems to be much more amenable to rational evaluation and control. He offers psychology instead of theology. He offers science instead of God. Jonathan Kahn wrote, The mission of Baal is to cause a nation that has known God to stop knowing him and then to forget him and then to forget that it ever knew him. That's done by removing God from the schools, which was done in the 1960s, and then from the government and its institutions, which was done in the 1990s, and then from the marketplace, which was done in the early 2000s, and then from public spaces, which is being done now, so that the only remaining place where God can be found is inside the closed doors of churches. Kahn went on, quote, America had removed from public view the commandments against worshiping other gods. Now it could do so. It had removed the commandments forbidding sexual immorality. Now it could embrace it. Once the word of God was removed, there was nothing left to hold back the nation's fall. Baal had succeeded. America was going to be altered beyond recognition. End quote. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells a parable of the unclean spirits. Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. This parable is typically interpreted as a warning about demonic possession of an individual. While it is that, it also seems to be a warning about demonic possession in general. The principle is that when a house is left empty, evil spirits will come to fill it. That house can be a human body or it can be a society or nation. When a nation abandons God, his spirit departs from that nation, just like his spirit departed from the temple in Jerusalem when the Jews abandoned God. When America abandoned God officially, which occurred when the government leadership abandoned God, America opened itself to having other spirits enter. It lay spiritually empty, but it would not remain empty for very long. Everyone worshipped something, and when God exited, many somethings began competing for worship. Values and standards that had stood for centuries were discarded, and new values were established. Wealth, status, and fame took the place of God. The mind of man asserted itself over the mind of God. Sexual deviance replaced marriage. The youth culture replaced family life. Man would remake the world in his own image and in the process, spite God's law in favor of man's desires. And when man's desires began to rule over God's laws, some men began to implement a plan to take over other men's bodies in much the same way that the spirits did. Right, Yuval Noah Harari? Now, when the two revolutions merge, when the infotech revolution merges with the biotech revolution, what you get is the ability to hack human beings. 
we don't have to wait until Christ's second coming uh, in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a laboratory can do it if you give them enough time and money. You have a lovely passage where you say, looking at the world today, God seems to be making a comeback, but this is a mirage. God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. <laughs> I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. Lovely guy. But the most important moment of change took place on April 22, 1970, when the environmental movement was established by the first Earth Day celebration. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but the environmental movement was established on the same day that Vladimir Lenin was born. Well, I, for one, don't believe in coincidences. The worshipping of the Earth officially resumed on April 2, 1970. Nature is no longer a gift from God to be stewarded, but the absolute reality that is to be idolized, worshipped, venerated, and exalted. Nature idolatry is a kind of spiritual infection that asserts that the earth is succumbing to the illness of anthropogenic climate change. It claims that climate change is an illness that will result in the death of most human beings on this planet if left unchecked. Bale did his job of separating America from God and substituting a new God in his place, the God of nature. That permitted the second spirit of the Dark Trinity to emerge, a spirit known as the Enchantress, the Queen of Heaven. She is the goddess of love, of war, and of destruction. Khan writes, quote, She was fiery, impetuous, impulsive, greedy, emotional, demanding, stormy, fierce, carnal given to rage, romantic, vindictive, full of unbridled passion, insatiable sexual desire and boundless pride. If denied the object of her desires, or if offended, she would become vengeful and violent and would wreak havoc and destruction. She was the breaker of rules, the trespasser of boundaries, and the transgressor of standards and conventions." End quote. Gosh, that sounds like any good progressive. She was also the goddess of prostitution, taking particular interest in their affairs. She was the patron goddess of the tavern, which is where prostitutes used to hang out in the ancient days. According to Khan, quote, She was an enchantress, a sorceress, a goddess of magic and spells. Her worship was saturated with carnality, sensuality, and open sexuality, end quote. So who was this second member of the Dark Trinity? Well, she went by many names, but the most familiar ones are her Mesopotamian name Ishtar, Ashtoreth, and Ashtaroth in the Bible, Astarte to the Canaanites, Aphrodite in Greece, and Venus to the Romans. Ishtar always accompanied Baal. Ishtar and Baal were responsible for the separation of Israel from God and its apostasy, as recorded in Judges 2.13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Baal led people away from God and pointed them toward carnality and sensuality, and Ishtar escorted them into it. America turned from God following the Second World War, and right on its heels came the sexual revolution, which would transform America from a God-centered land to a land without God. America went from a land of churches and morality to a land of sex clubs and unrestrained sexual promiscuity that eventually justified every imaginable perversion 
from prostitution to bestiality, homosexuality to pedophilia. For many people, marriage has become, at best, an afterthought, with little consideration as to its sanctity before God. Divorces become rampant as the sexual revolution plowed up and destabilized relationships and families. But Ishtar did more than that. She brought sexuality to the marketplace. America became the world's leader in producing, selling, and exporting pornography, first in print and then film and video. Ishtar was the goddess of prostitution, which in the Greek is the word porne. The word pornography means writing about a prostitute, which is how the spirit of Ishtar invaded America. Today, a hotel room may or may not have a Bible in a drawer, but virtually every hotel room has pornography on demand at the click of a button, for a fee, of course. All this pornography led to the eroticization of America. In Greece, Eros was the child of Aphrodite, of Ishtar. Eros means desire, and it is the root of the word erotic. Eroticism came from Ishtar. Khan had this to say about the sexualization of America, quote, the civilization that had been consecrated at its inception to advancing the gospel and spreading the light of God to the nations was covering the earth with pornography and advancing the agenda of another spirit, that which now controlled it, that of the prostitute goddess, end quote. But her influence went beyond being just sexual. She had the power to alter perceptions, thinking, and behavior. The 1960s birthed something other than sexual promiscuity. It birthed the age of mind-altering promiscuity. The number of intoxicating substances exploded as America sought alternatives to alcohol. That alternative was satiated in a rapidly expanding list of mind-altering chemical substances that were suddenly widely available in the 1960s, due in large part to government and academic decisions to fund, produce, and study the effects of the drugs in places like American colleges and universities. In the taverns of the ancient world, Ishtar was the patron deity who pushed alcohol, sex, and something else on her customers. The taverns were filled with music. So, of course, along with the sexual revolution in the drug culture of America, came rock and roll, a musical style that has birthed scores of other musical genres, most of which have become increasingly coarse and debased over time. She was a goddess who practiced magic so it should be no surprise that the popularity of occult practices spread along with the sex, drugs, and rock and roll she promoted. One of the fastest-growing religions in America is Wicca, a unique merging of ancient pagan beliefs with New Age and Eastern religious concepts. But Ishtar had one more attribute that is particularly pertinent to today. She could change genders at will. She had a kind of sexual duality and she promoted the same kind of sexual fluidity with her most devout followers. Men would castrate themselves to show their devotion to Ishtar, and her male priests would dress as women, and her women priestesses would dress as men as they promoted homosexuality and androgyny. They were the woke LGBTQ crowd millennia before it became popular in America, even promoting parades in which these sexual deviants would showcase their deviant lifestyles. They blurred the lines of masculinity and femininity to create a kind of androgynous being. These two spirits form the dark duo that are always found together, Baal and Ishtar. 
But there was a third spirit that worked with them to bring down ancient Israel. That spirit is known as the destroyer. He is the abomination god, little g, a god so vile that Yahweh kicked out the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites from the promised land for the sins that they practiced in following him. This dark abomination god went by the name of Molech. The name Molech comes up occasionally in the Bible, and God had several things to say about him, none of them good. He said, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18.21 He said, Any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Leviticus 22 And he said, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Jeremiah 32.35 Worshippers of Molech practiced a ritual that was literally the worst sin against the creation that God could imagine. They took the ultimate good gift of God, a little baby, and burned him or her alive in a fire, placing the child on a pan and extending it into the fire to cook the child alive. In these ceremonies, a cadre of drums were played loudly to drown out the screams of the little children as they were burned alive, just to help the parents avoid any feeling of guilt if they should hear the sound of their little screaming child. Molech was so evil that he required not just a human sacrifice, but a human child sacrifice. This was not a problem to the ancient pagans, because they viewed human life quite differently than we do in this post-Christian era. Human life in those days was devalued and disposable, especially children's lives, because they were not considered to have any inherent worth. The value of any particular human life was determined by the parents, or by the owners, or by the king, or by the gods. It was the God of the Jews, Yahweh, who first commanded the absolute value of human life, all human life, without exception, even down to the widows, orphans, children, and slaves, the lowest of the socially low. Molech commanded no such value, however. Instead, he demanded human sacrifice. And why was he accommodated? Why did parents willingly burn their children alive? Because the parents believed that offering their child as a sacrifice would earn them a benefit. They believed that they would get something out of the transaction, something that would make their lives better. In the same way, the spirit of Molech moved into America right after Ishtar and Baal, and he began demanding child sacrifices as well. It all started in 1973 with the legal abomination known as Roe v. Wade. Following the illegal legalization of abortion in 1973, America murdered well over 60 million children, and it continues to murder children even today in abortion clinics all across the land. Molech had his priests in the ancient days, and he has his priests today in the form of abortionists and their money-making pro-abortion apologists who call themselves pro-choice. And why do women choose to murder their children in modern-day abortion clinics? For just one reason. They think they will obtain a benefit from it. 
They believe they will obtain a more secure financial future, or they believe they will mitigate any psychological trauma that they may have experienced from the pregnancy, or they think it will keep them out of some kind of trouble, or they believe they will free up time for more desirable pursuits than just raising a child. Regardless of the specific reason, it's the same kind of rationalization that the ancient Canaanites used when they sacrificed their own children to Molech. It is the valuing of self more than the baby, which is the opposite of Christian teaching, which makes it demonic. That is a quick summary of the spiritual insights of Jonathan Kahn on how the old gods repossessed America. But the question remains, how exactly did it come about? Well, Kahn thinks that he stumbled onto the answer to that question, too. The process of separating America from God began after World War II with the entrance of Baal, but the cultural change had to wait until Ishtar made her entrance, which occurred at a little-known event in New York City known as the Stonewall Riots. The riots began at the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in Greenwich Village owned by the Mafia. In late June of 1969, the police raided the bar. At the time, there were about 200 people there, and as the police sorted them out and began unloading some of them into the vans, the crowd began to go into a rage. People began taunting the police and throwing objects at them. It got so violent that the police had to retreat into the bar where they were eventually rescued by other police. But the riot went on for days. Ishtar was making an entrance, forcing open a gate that had been closed by Christ. New York was the gateway to America, which was the only country other than Israel that was dedicated at its inception to God. And the Stonewall Inn was the Eshdam in which the goddess dwelled, the tavern, the bar. Ale was a ritual drink for Ishtar, and the Stonewall Inn was a pub that served beer, a close relative of ale. It was also a place where sexual energy was constant, one of the main features of Ishtar. But not just regular sexual energy. Prostitution, both straight and homosexual, was there. And what we now call transgender energy, the same energy that defined Ishtar. It was a little bar in the gateway to America, but it launched the movement that was to transform America. One year from that event, on June 28, 1970, the participants of the uprising marched in what is called the Christopher Street Liberation Day March. This march was repeated each year in cities around America and then around the world and came to be known as Gay Pride March, Gay Pride Parade, or just the Pride Parade. That is a very brief, very partial synopsis of the fascinating book The Return of the Gods, a book that documents the repossession of America by the powerful spirits of darkness. The book will blow you away with more shocking and surprising details, so if you are interested in reading it, I encourage you to make a purchase and absorb everything that Jonathan Kahn has uncovered. As he documents, spirits that are the embodiment of evil exist, as confirmed by Paul in Ephesians 6.12, where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In this very famous verse, he describes the spirit entities that are behind the evil actions of men, entities that have the ability to empower men to do evil so that they will war against God. These spirits separate men from God, entice men to practice the most loathsome sins, 
and induce them to offer sacrifices that defy God and show contempt for both him and his creation. If we miss that part of the story, the non-physical part of reality, we will never properly understand what's actually happening to America and to the world. I listen to people every day talking as if we can regain some kind of control over our nation and restore our little world to what it was if we just find a way to manage it a little bit better. Maybe we need to say the right words to make people understand. Or maybe we need to contest the right problem in a judicial setting. Or maybe we need to elect the right person or pass the right laws. Or maybe we need to sit on the right board or get in the right position and that will get us back on the right track. And if all else fails, maybe we need to find the right leaders and show them just how upset we are. In other words, life will go back to normal if we just find a way to manage the situation properly. Well, that's a plan, but it leaves out the important part of the story where the spirits enter society to possess it, creating a mass delusion that induces people to think irrationally, emote irrationally, and most importantly, act irrationally. The goals of these spirits is always the same. First, they take control of society, then they turn it away from God, and then they destroy it. The Bible very clearly identifies who is good and who is evil in this world and what constitutes good and what constitutes evil. When men and women disregard what the Bible says about these matters and begin to make their own judgments about all things good and evil, they invariably get it wrong. And Satan loves it when people do that. It allows for all kinds of dangerous misinterpretations of reality. A large percentage of people actually understand that reality is much bigger than just the material part of it, but most of them have this awful tendency to believe doctrines of demons instead of the sound revelations of God in Scripture. They listen to the wolves in sheep's clothing explain reality to them, and they listen with excitement and enthusiasm. I'm going to play some excerpts from an interview that Sarah Westall had with Phil Catalino a former NASA and JPL scientist. Phil was an insider who observed things that you and I don't ever get to see. I play this interview, however, with a word of caution. Both Sarah and Phil are greatly mistaken in their understanding of many aspects of this world and the greater universe around us. Neither of them is a Christian in the sense that I would define the term. They are what the world calls spiritual, which just means they're dabbling in the half of reality that they don't properly understand and thereby leave themselves open to all kinds of spiritual treachery that God has warned us about. But their misunderstandings mirror the misunderstandings of the people who are involved in these events and who make decisions on the world stage. I don't want you to think that I buy into Phil's or even Sarah's explanations, but it's important to hear them so that we can perceive what very influential and powerful people think about this world and what they believe is taking place. As a podcast, we're going to depart for a time from the mundane world of fifth-generation warfare so that we can enter the much more complex and confusing world of sixth-generation warfare, the kind of warfare that involves another dimension where things don't work exactly the way they do here in our safe little haven of physicality. And we're going to do that because it's the only way for us to understand the big delusion that is coming and that cannot be stopped. Nothing can stop it because God has ordained that it's going to happen. But if we understand it, at least we won't fall for it. And if we understand it, that's pretty good evidence that we're part of the elect because the only thing allowing us to understand it is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So let's start out with a bit of background on Mr. Catalino, courtesy of Sarah's great introduction. I have one of my favorite people coming to the show, Phil Catalino. He's brilliant. He has five science degrees. He's just very broad in his understanding of science. And he also is really interested in, in subjects that the mainstream universities, mainstream medical science, they're not interested in. And so he uses his really broad knowledge of science to investigate all these different issues. But he worked at JPL for a few decades, and that is part of Caltech, and it's the only contractor for NASA that's not part of the government. And so it allowed them to do all these different things. And so he's going to talk about his time there, and then we're going to talk about more broad what he knows with, with things outside of JPL. Phil is one of those unusual people who choose to obtain a very broad scientific education across several disciplines. You have a really interesting story on your own that I really wanted to talk to you about, and that is your time at JPL. You have five science degrees, for crying out loud. You are a the scientist, and um, which I love. But you also worked at JPL, and people don't know what JPL is. It's a branch of NASA, right? Can you talk about what JPL is? And then we can yes. dive into all sorts of cool things. NASA, uh, JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory of the California Institute of Technology. So Caltech owns JPL as a lab. And um, I have a contract with NASA and operates uh, JPL as a contractor, and it's the only NASA agency that doesn't belong to the government. So it has kind of the best of both worlds. It's a contractor and um, it has uh, its own flexibility with the contract. And so when something comes up and NASA wants to get something done either quickly and doesn't have to go through the bureaucracy of its other agencies. Um, it contacts JPL and says, do this and so forth. And so uh, I guess it was started. Here's, here's an early part of this that's kind of important and it's well documented. And that is JPL was founded in the late 40s, early 50s by a scientist or three scientists, uh, one of which was the famous Jack Parsons. And uh, the other one is Molina. Um, and I don't remember the third one's name. They were not as uh, active in you know, the history books, if you will. But uh, Jack Parsons and the lab is often called Jack Parsons Lab. Jack Parsons was a, an occult uh, scientist and um, an occult researcher. He was a cohort of uh, Alistair Crowley and Jack Parsons was the uh, head of the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis and Golden Dawn in Los Angeles. And that's something JPL does not talk a lot about. No, I wouldn't think so. And this is an insight that you might never have been given. There are many, many scientists, some very prestigious and well-known scientists, who are deeply into occult issues and practices. Occult means hidden knowledge, but not hidden from everyone. It's not hidden from those who seek it. It is accessible to those who want to find it, 
and it's real, and it's powerful, and it's empowering. Atheists may tell you that the occult doesn't exist, but those who embrace the occult know that it does. Things that don't exist weaken people who believe in them and eventually fizzle out and die. Things that do exist strengthen people so that they can grow and spread. This interview starts out with a statement that the man who founded JPL wasn't an occultist, which suggests that the occult has come out of the closet. It's already in scientific circles, and it's going to increasingly affect the decisions and pursuits of both scientists and the government. Welcome to the brave new world. I've been a student of ancient wisdom knowledge uh, since I was a teenager. And I gathered a lot of information from a lot of sources. And JPL was obviously on that list. Phil just said that he has been a student of ancient wisdom knowledge since he was a kid. So in other words, for decades. Ancient wisdom knowledge is a euphemism for the occult. So Jack has been involved with the occult for decades. I guess that makes him a kind of expert on the matter. Jack knows all about the Bible, and I'd be willing to bet that somewhere along the line he heard this warning in Deuteronomy 18, 10-12. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Yes, I think Phil did hear this somewhere but he decided to reject this advice. All occult practices fall into these biblically listed categories. As we will see, Sarah also seems quite willing to reject God's advice. The important question is why? Why are people so willing to reject the sound advice of God and pursue secret knowledge? Well, I'll leave that up to you to ponder. One of Jack Parsons' projects was the Babylon workings, and it was a ritual that uh, he performed with a number of other people. And some of his best friends were L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Hyland. And the three of them, along with several others, put this project together, or ritual together, called the Babylon Working. And it's well documented, well studied and researched and published. But um, it opened up a portal in the early 1950s that supposedly allowed uh, UFOs to come in to this planet. Okay, Pete, this is getting really out there. Yes, but if you want to know what's coming, you're going to have to hang in there and internalize what Phil is saying. First of all, who are these other two men he mentions besides Jack Parsons? Most people recognize the name L. Ron Hubbard, he is a world-famous science fiction and fantasy author who founded the Church of Scientology, the term church being a loose use of that word. Scientology has attracted many famous people like Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Jenna Elfman, Kirstie Alley, Lisa Marie Presley, Sonny and Cher, Greta Van Susteren, Catherine Bell, and formerly Nicole Kidman and Katie Holmes. It's a religion founded on occult principles. Robert Heinlein was also a very famous science fiction author. In fact, he is considered by many to be the godfather of science fiction. He was also an aeronautical engineer and a naval officer. Jack Parsons and maybe all three of these men were friends with the man who was at one time known as the wickedest man in the world. His name was Aleister Crowley. 
Aleister Crowley influenced many famous people, such as Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and countless other entertainers, even up to our modern cadre of pop artists like Jay-Z and Beyonce, or Beyonce, or whatever the heck her name is. Jack Parsons and his two science fiction friends created an occultic ritual to open a portal of some kind. Phil believes the portal let UFOs through. Both of these ideas, a portal and UFOs, are themes that have become increasingly popular in both science fiction and mainstream science, and not to mention the U.S. military lately, saying that we've got UFOs all over the place. Portals have featured prominently in many movies, television shows, and books. Star Trek regularly featured portals of one kind or another. Stargate SG-1 is a TV show that featured this idea of a portal opening to other worlds. Portals are not just relegated to science fiction writing, however, because they are also discussed among scientists at the highest levels of research, including scientists at CERN in Switzerland. In science, portals are thought to potentially be accessible through manipulation of extra dimensions of reality. But in the occult world, they're simply understood to be a way to induce intelligent entities that are over there to come over here. The Bible alludes to a kind of portal being opened in the end times. In Revelation 9.1, at the fifth trumpet, an angel identified as a star is given something. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. A key is a tool used to open something that's closed or close something that's open. We'll get back to this verse at some point in the future. For now, just keep in mind that a portal is simply an entranceway from one place to another. The Gate of Ishtar, for example, was a symbolic portal from the world of human beings to the dominion of the goddess Ishtar. So these three scientists believed that their rituals opened a portal to somewhere that allowed something to cross over from there to here, and they didn't use science to open it. Yet, we're expected to believe that what came through was something of science. Nikola Tesla was involved in frequency and vibrational energy research, which ostensibly came from some communications that took place through a kind of portal. Tesla was a physics genius of almost unparalleled ability in history. Tesla Corporation is named after him. Let's listen carefully and see what kind of nuggets we can pick up and pack away for a future day. So Tesla, you're saying Tesla didn't, because well, Tesla talks about being downloaded information, but you're saying he actually reverse engineered yeah. things too. He got access he, to. There's quotes. I didn't know that. There's Interesting. quotes that, that show up that Tesla talks about the downloads and the information that was given to him. He may not have met with anyone in person, any of the ETs in person, but he got the information and they stimulated what he could do and had to help him do it. And uh, I guess uh, Trump's uncle worked, uh, was a scientist at MIT. That's right. And gathered up all the information. MIT. That's a known story also. Um, let me back up a bit. Yeah, I, I had Daniel List on my show, Dark Journalist, and we talked about it many years ago at the beginning of the Trump yeah. presidency that his uncle, who he was very close to, was um, actually in charge of the Tesla files. It kind of made people angry at the time. I don't know if they were paid trolls or what, but that's fact. It is what it is, and it makes the whole Trump connection even more mm -hmm. interesting. Note two things. 
There is information being stored at MIT called the Tesla files, and Trump's uncle worked on that file. People inside and outside of our government have absolute loathing for Trump and want to make sure that he is never again able to secure a powerful position in government. Many of these people are occultists, and many of them are hiding information from the public that they never want to see the light of day, and they are willing to do and say almost anything to keep Trump out of office. I wonder why. Yeah, a lot of things are hidden. A lot of things are compartmentalized. They don't want anybody talking among themselves and sharing information, so it's compartmentalized. Um, I had a top secret SCI, which is secured compartmentalized information for, uh, I had a top secret clearance at JPL for 12 years and the last nine above top secret. That's the SCI part. So when I, going back to some stories in my early days at JPL, because um, I was fascinated with all the things that they were involved in. When I first started working there, I went into every building I walked on, every floor, looking and observing and talking with people. Just during my lunch hour, I spent like months in those early days trying to see everything I could. A couple of interesting stories. One of them, I went down a corridor in one of the hallways, came across a showcase, and there was a ball, steel ball, suspended in a device that just floated. It was like anti-gravity. Turns out, talking about frequency and vibration, I talked to the, I went inside the office and talked to the scientists that were there and who put the display case together. And it was sound energy that was they were using to suspend the ball in the middle. And they made a nice little display and put it in the display case in the hallway. And it was just sitting there running, operating all the time. And I was fascinated with that. Another story. Well, isn't that theoretically what, hold on a second, that's a big deal. Theoretically, that's what they think probably moved those big, huge boulders and big things happening with the pyramids back in the day, because nobody believes they actually used pulleys because they were so massive. Yes. The, theor the theory is that they use sound yes. to move this because we just don't, and we don't have that technology open well, today. Keep going. Like I this said, is very it, it was displayed at JPL in the late 80, late 70s and early 80s. So, so I knew I it. saw it. We have, yeah, we have it, but it's not, it's not available to the no, average no. person, it, shall well, I say. Although Go ahead. there are classified programs that do use it because, and even one of the stories about construction of the big pyramids and monolithic buildings and construction sites in South America and Africa and Egypt, obviously, they would, one of the stories that I remember is they took a bat of some type of device and they would whack the stone and it would vibrate to the point where it would uh, either be suspended in gravity or it would hold and move. And so when it vibrated, this 25,000 ton block would be able to be moved easily. They'd whack it and move it, whack it and move it. So that vibrational energy, that technology was starting to be explored because they moved those big monolithic blocks somehow and there had to be technology that was available in this on this planet and so that led to experiments with sound energy and i you know just 
lots of experiments right now. Yeah, well, they have monoliths that are the size of a football field that was quarried from 100 miles away. So you can't... Yeah. <laughs> the way that they describe what ancient Egypt yeah. was is not possible yeah. unless they were much more advanced. Yep, they had to suspend gravity in order to move them somehow. And that vibrational energy is one of the primary... Uh, theories on how it was moved. For those of you who are unfamiliar with very ancient structures in places like Egypt, Iraq, and South America, the foundations of many of these structures are made of monolithic blocks of rock that weigh up to a couple of thousands of tons, some of which were quarried tens or even hundreds of miles from where they were ultimately placed. It's easy to trace the origin of the rock because the kind of rock used was different than the bedrock in the area where the blocks were placed. Searches have been made to match the stone to particular ancient quarries, which is possible because stones have unique chemical signatures based on the rock body they come from. So it's easy to match a quarried stone with the quarry if the quarry can be found. I have not heard of a block of rock being the size of a football field, but some of them are so large that today, we would need to construct special massive cranes right over them in order to move them, and we wouldn't be able to move them very far. They are too heavy to go on transports, and the idea of pulling them with ropes and people or donkeys or elephants is just plain silly. It's not remotely possible. The friction on the base of these stones would be too high to overcome. Any logs placed under them, if you could get logs under them, would be crushed by their weight or buried in the soil. Ropes would need to be hundreds or thousands of feet long to give as many people or animals a grip on it as possible. No rope that could be held by humans or animals could pull that kind of weight. We use steel cables, the thickness of trees to hold up bridges, and these blocks can weigh almost as much as a bridge. The idea of moving them with ropes is just ridiculous. But they were moved, and they were moved long distances long before the advent of written records. There is a theory that the largest blocks were part of ancient buildings that existed prior to the flood and that the remnant foundation stones were repurposed afterward with smaller blocks placed on top to construct younger but still ancient structures. This is the part of our history that I personally think has been deliberately hidden from us, although it's alluded to in the Bible. But whether you believe history has been modified or not, there's no doubt that these blocks were moved somehow. We just have no idea how. Can you talk about this group that you're part of that is very serious, a really high-level, good people part of it? Talk about, oh, yeah. share it's, with it's our very listeners, because I think people would find it. It's a world-famous organization, the Society for Scientific Exploration. So this society has engineers and scientists that are involved in all the different ter technologies including the paranormal and metaphysical technologies. And as a That's side cool. note, okay, um, we in metaphysics and paranormal would look at bonding as a relationship of understanding. But those scientists in the SSE and other mainstream don't recognize woo-woo. Okay? But if you term it in terms of scientific terms, uh, bonding is, is uh, entanglement. And quantum entanglement is an acceptable term. So now we can study it formally under the terms of quantum entanglement. One of the things that 
that you told me is that a lot of intelligence agencies get involved and monitor that organization because of the level no, of exper expertise of people coming together. They like to monitor and figure out what's going on. Yeah, uh, cutting edge technology. They're involved in all of the um, the paranormal and metaphysical and in science and healing and all of the areas of science that are pushed off to the side from mainstream. And so these folks, and there's hundreds of these scientists, uh, all work on various things that are not accepted in mainstream, like Roger Nelson with the Global Conscious Network and many others, uh, the conferences. And I guess you can look at some of the videos and, and presentations from, from the past. They talk about all of the health, healing, and metaphysical sciences as studied by serious scientists with the tools of science that are available. The problem is most of the mainstream scientists don't have the tools or the information to investigate. So in other words, like chi, prana, uh, life force, we know that exists. Things go bump in the night, but we don't have the tools to measure it. So they dismiss it or it's easily dismissed because they can't explain it. But it's been around for a long time. I'm a student of Tai Chi and Qigong. I practice every day. I work with teachers. And Qi is the life force energy that we can move and do anything. Well, science knows of it. They can't, dark matter, dark energy. They don't know what it is because they don't have the tools to measure it and define it. If it can't be defined, it don't exist. So the SSC right. scientists. It's, it's, it's their way of dealing with it. Yes, the SSC scientists well, okay. say. And what did they, and what did they find out? I mean, what are some of the interesting elements well, that they found? Because, you know, Eastern medicine and Eastern scientists, and uh, I've had some on my show, they take this stuff seriously. And it really helped uh, change Western views of this. Yeah. So what did you find out? What did the organization find out? They investigated things like telepathy, clairvoyance, remote viewing, remote influencing. All of those now are starting to get mainstream attention. And so it happens. It exists. What is it? And so they can apply it in many different ways. Remote viewing is very famous now. Everyone is involved in that and it's not such woo-woo anymore, but there's still that connection between humans is still not defined in the mainstream. We can call it telepathy, but what is that? How does the mind, how does the consciousness communicate? How do we get downloads or information? That's still under investigation, but we still apply it. Neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. I got, I took classes in that and certifications in that. And that is one area where they start looking at all the different body functions and how they're analyzed and how they influence each other and how they're propagated through society. So there's lots of things that are still getting uh, attention. And NASA and all of the other investigative scientists are investigating it. A lot of it is classified. Um, we communicate with ETs. We communicate with AI. Um, there are some programs that interface with computers. People talk, talk and think, and the computer reacts. 
So we know something is connected. We're trying to find out all the details. So this is getting to the heart of the matter. Phil said that there are scientists who are involved in occult investigations and intelligence agencies that are also involved in occult science. The CIA has been involved with the occult for decades, and they experimented in occult mind control practices. A great book that exposed a lot of the most disturbing CIA medical activities was written by a doctor, a medical doctor, and it's called The CIA Doctors. He draws his material exclusively from declassified government documents. It's horrifying what he exposes, and that doesn't begin to touch the information that's still classified or was destroyed in purges so no one will ever be able to reveal it. Compartmentalization is a methodology that is still used to control information in order to make sure as few people as possible know about it. That minimizes the chances that the information will fall into the wrong hands, which, as often as not, are the hands of American voters. Phil said that the scientists are studying chi, prana, and life force because they know they exist, but they don't have the tools to quantify it. Of course they don't have the tools, because these are occultic concepts. Science cannot control or influence the spirit world, as the only tools at the disposal of scientists are physical. So naturally, they don't have tools that can measure and define occult entities and powers. But that doesn't mean that the occult entities and powers don't exist. People, including people in the intelligence and military services, have been studying remote viewing and remote influencing for decades. Those are occult practices. The occultists call it astral projection and spellcasting, but they're the same thing. To do these things, the practitioner has to summon something that's not human to help them do something that we cannot normally do, which in this case is experience what is happening at a distant location or influencing the events at a distant location by influencing the behavior of someone who's there. The problem for scientists is that we now have enough classified data to show that these things can be done, but these things cannot be controlled in a scientific context. Which again makes sense, because the entities making these things happen are demons from the spirit realm, which are not controllable by human actions or mechanical instruments. Unless, of course, they wish to be controlled in order to create an effect that they're after. Neural linguistic programming and AI are interrelated and are found on the internet. You can ask the latest AI device to answer a question, and it operates using a neural emulation process to reproduce human speech and respond like a human to a question. Phil also said that NASA is communicating with ETs and with AI, which are interconnected in that they both have a connection to the spirit realm. ETs are nothing but demons masquerading as entities from another planet or dimension, and AI is a tool through which demons can influence our world today. In fact, there's good reason to believe that AI systems were constructed from the instructions of demons for their use and benefit. It's all interconnecting. What do you want to share with people as we wrap this up? What do you want people to know? Well, there's an awful lot going on behind the scenes. You've got to be open-minded and say, if it exists, people are looking into it, maybe not talking about it, maybe not writing about it, but some are. And the more that information gets out there, the more interests, the more curiosity people get. And so therefore, it starts to come out. 
And so pay attention to all the things that are going on. I've studied uh, what's referred to as occult magic. I studied with the various mystery schools, Rosicrucians, Golden Dawn, and, and Freemasons, etc. There are people involved in that that are part of the government, that are part of industry, high level. JPL still has, when I left there 30 years ago, they still had a, a group meeting of uh, OTO that was spun off from uh, Jack Parsons' work. And so I, I met with them a couple of times. I didn't join the group because I was traveling too much and there was meetings happening uh, where I couldn't get access to. Um, but still, there was uh, a lot more people investigating this that are serious, that just can't talk about it, that just can't document it. But it's going on, and the more we pay attention to it, the more it starts to surface. We're opening up a lot of doors. That's right. And the more we can talk about it, and it's not censored, and that's it. And more and more is coming out. I think over the next, you know, decades here, we're going to learn so much that we never knew. We're going to start learning about our history more in a real way. I'm really right. hoping these the light shines on all of this because it's the only way for us to move forward. But they're working yeah. extra hard to shut down that light. Sarah is implying that the light of the occult is the light we need to advance. She said talking about these things is the only way we're going to move forward. Well, I can assure you she's not alone in this belief. There are countless people working to bring the occult into the mainstream. Phil said that there are many high-level people in occult organizations who are leaders in government, industry, and science. They are doing a lot behind the scenes, but just can't talk about it openly right now because the time is not yet right. Not yet, but the publications of occult research are helpful because every time something comes out, it generates more and more interest. It's, quote, opening up a lot of doors, end quote. There's connections we have to understand better. Uh, ETs, AI are two of the areas that are very, and they're tied together because there's a supposedly an AI in the universe that's conquering various solar systems and galaxies. And we're a target, Earth. And so there's a connection between the AI and what's going on with our ET and UFO investigations. There's a lot more going on than being talked about. And they're in secret societies, they're in secret government programs, they're classified, but they're going on. Phil said it. AI and ETs and UFOs are all connected and they are connecting with each other. No, there's not a super civilization or AI intelligence that is trying to take over galaxies and the Earth, but it's a good cover story. There are just demons playing a role to fool gullible human beings so that they can usher in the world's greatest deception for their master to establish his Antichrist on the throne. The Antichrist is the opposite of Christ. They are going to bring in a new age that will look as foreign and alien to you and me as the LGBTQ world does now. Now, I'm a throwback to a simpler age of the 1980s, long before pornography was openly available in public schools. We actually had to look for it in secret hidey places. People my age were students before the schools and sporting venues were flooded with transgender, genderqueer, and fluid gender worshippers of Ishtar. We were children before child-molesting predators were invited to host drag queen story hour in public venues and libraries where they could diddle little children on their laps, all with the dreamy support of the parents. We grew up when boys were boys and girls were girls, and the weird ones wanted to do it with the wrong sex, 
but at least they did it discreetly. All of that has changed, but what lies in the future is going to make even those abominations pale in comparison with the great deception. Now, please don't think I'm telling you that motherships are coming to Earth and E.T. is going to land on the White House lawn to make some big announcement. I'm not saying that. It's all occultic to the core, which is itself a deception by the spirits that God warned us about in 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. End of the quote. All of those things, that long list of problems, is going to be caused by deceiving spirits and their doctrines, which are promulgated to people with a skepticism wall that's way too short for reasons explained by Paul in Romans 1. There is so much to unpack in those verses with regard to today, but the bottom line is they hate God and they're going to do everything they can to erase him from history, from memory, and from the world. And they love those who do and think the same way they do. These are the people who are going to facilitate the great deception that will befuddle the entire world, except for those who God blesses, who love the truth and love God. Next time, we'll start to unpack the hidden, secret, compartmentalized plan of deception that's being prepared even now to affect and infect the whole world. It involves ancient gods, small g, advanced technologies, aliens, UFOs, AI, quantum computing, the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine, an insatiable desire of humans to sin, food sacrificed to idols, a misunderstanding of God, and the most important insight given to us in Revelation 2, which is the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I can't wait! If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and UndergroundChristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord, the deceptions are growing in strength and intensity, so please extend your hand of protection over the listeners of this podcast and grow their wall of skepticism while sharpening their capacity to analyze the information available to us and comprehend the connections. We wait impatiently for Jesus to return and set the entire world aright, yet we know that a disaster must come first. Help us to help others in whatever way we can, regardless of what comes our way. Give us the strength, wisdom, and cunning to dodge the arrows of the enemy and praise the only name that you have elevated to be honored and revered on this earth. And to wrap up, just a little excerpt from one of my favorite performances of the Christian Baptist University Choir and Orchestra. Go to the YouTube and give them some love.